0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world and is now a leading supplier across the Americas. With the world's most powerful 250-kilowatt, 1500-volt string inverter, SunGrow is providing disruptive technology for utility-scale projects. Find out more at SunGrowPower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang. Weekly debates and discussions on the fast changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. This week, solar and wind have sent European utilities into financial disarray, and U.S. utilities are facing a similar fate. Are global oil companies also facing a similar future? A new report from one of the world's biggest banks says that solar and wind, paired with electric cars, provides up to seven times more useful energy for mobility than gasoline dollar for dollar. And that could hit oil companies sooner than they think. How did they reach this conclusion? And how does it square with the reality that EVs aren't yet growing fast enough to put a dent in oil demand? Then, a regulatory surprise from the Trump administration is delaying an 800-megawatt offshore wind project and potentially hurting other projects planned for the East Coast— Is this a careful step by regulators or a cynical political move from a hostile White House? Finally, 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg is on her way to the U.S., and she's come under fire from conservative media in the countries she's visited. We'll look at the strange reaction to her rise and influence. Boy, you know, I can only dream that my new daughter will grow up to be as influential and passionate enough to be attacked by a New York Times columnist. Many years to go. That's right, I am uh, back after a month hiatus while on paternity leave, spending time with my new daughter. We have a new member of the gang. But let's not forget about our OG members, Katherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's in New York, in the Adirondacks, in her isolated, undisclosed location in a cabin in the woods. How are you?
1: I'm great. Congratulations on the new baby. It's so exciting.
0: Thank you very much. Jigger is the president of Generate Capital, and how are we doing, sir?
2: Where are you at this week? I am. I am in D.C. and far more rested than you probably are.
0: <laughs> yes, I was writing show notes uh, from three a.m. until about seven a.m. this morning. So, uh, <laughs> reading all the articles I sent around, doing show notes. So I'm white knuckling life right now. <laughs> So what did you both do for summer vacation while I was gone? I guess, Catherine, you're on summer vacation now.
1: Yeah, I was working really, really hard before Congress went on recess. So it was good that I had a few extra hours in every week. And now August is really my time to recharge.
0: Excellent. Jigger. what about you? So I went to the DR. I successfully came back without any... Right, of course. <laughs> you're here with us. Your Your worries about not living through it.
2: were unfounded. Exactly. And then I'm off to Iceland, uh, on Friday. So
0: Oh, cool. What are you doing there?
2: I am going to, you know, see all of the sites before they all melt.
0: <laughs> are you doing any geothermal touring? They've got some really cool plants there.
2: I, I do plan to see a geothermal, uh, power plant while I'm there. So I will, they're like
0: pieces of art. Yeah. They're really cool.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm not like what we have in it. the U S Yeah. I'm totally looking forward to it. So I've, it's funny though. I'm looking at my phone and it's like 52 degrees as the high there. So even in August,
0: all the better to swim in some power plant effluent from a geothermal (laughs) plant.
2: (laughs) That's what I want. An effluent swimming pool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We start with a new report from the eighth biggest bank in the world. PNB Paribas declaring a tough road ahead for oil. Um, it looked at the amount of energy you get for mobility per $100 billion spent on EVs charged with renewables at today's prices and gasoline refined from oil at $60 per barrel. And it found that you can get four to seven times more useful energy for mobility with the EV wind solar option. The term used to make this comparison is energy return on capital invested. And the analyst Mark Lewis says that a growing amount of oil will become uncompetitive for mobility when looking at uh, the resource through this metric. So it's an interesting addition to the range of analyses on the rise and influence of EVs. Um, Generally, most people believe EVs are not set yet to dramatically reduce oil consumption, if you look at the range of scenarios, mostly because of the increased demand in Asia for petroleum through the middle of the century. Um, our analysts at Wood Mackenzie see 100 million EVs on the roads over the next decade and a half, squeezing about 2 million barrels per day of oil demand. To put that into context, that has financial consequences for sure, but it's you know only one-twentieth the amount of oil the U.S. consumes daily. So does this report tell us anything new about the prospects for oil and and the threats facing it? Jigger, can you summarize these findings for us? What stood out?
2: Yeah, I don't know that this report was groundbreaking in terms of the way in which it informed us as much as the way it characterized the problem. So when you think about just the broad basic brushstrokes, if you have a diesel engine in the Caribbean and you're burning Diesel fuel to generate power, you get about 15 kilowatt hours of electricity for every gallon of diesel fuel that you burn. And so if the diesel is three bucks a gallon, you could imagine that that power then costs roughly 20 cents per kilowatt hour. Well, now if solar and wind are coming at two, three, four, five cents a kilowatt hour, you can imagine that it's six times cheaper to use solar and wind. Than to use diesel, right? And that's basically what the report is saying in a nutshell is they're saying for the same hundred billion dollars of investment that BP or Shell could make in finding more oil, if you're actually translating that into the cost of miles driven by electric vehicles instead, then that same hundred billion basically gets you a lot more. Uh, miles traveled by cars in EVs than it would in in you know gasoline or diesel or oil production, right? Particularly because it's it sets the price of oil flat at 60 bucks a barrel for a long time, which of course some people think it's going to go up, and then it uses the same learning curves that we've been seeing for solar and wind. So solar and wind improve over time, where oil prices stay flat. And it's basically just saying that the oil companies would be far better off in terms of profits and then the ability to actually drive more vehicles forward uh, six times better off if they did electric vehicles versus uh, oil.
1: So this takes into account losses, like losses on the petroleum and diesel side through transportation, refining, engine. um, And it also seemed to take some pretty conservative assumptions on the cost and capacity factors for renewables.
2: Yeah. No, I thought they were pretty conservative on the capacity factors for renewables. But of course, they're not conservative in terms of the full utilization of renewables, right? Remember, as we think that renewables gets to 80% um, penetration, then there might be a lot of curtailment. And they they didn't include any curtailment here. They just assumed all the kilowatt hours could be captured in batteries and then transferred into electric vehicles. What about the time frame of the analysis?
0: He's really comparing these resources over a period of 25 years, which makes wind and solar look a lot better over the lifetime of those projects. Does that skew the results in, in any way?
2: Well, in fact, it's actually, it, it helps oil um, to do it that way, right? Because what he's saying is for, for BP and Shell, If they start a brand new project today, it takes 10 years from today to actually get oil flowing from that new exploration project, right? So for all of the uh, deep uh, drilling that, for instance, Chevron has done outside of the coast of Brazil or other places, they started doing that in 2010. They're only now pumping oil out of those wells today, And so he's actually doing that to help the oil side look better because now at least you have 15 years worth of oil production. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is how to
0: square this with market adoption realities. Because as we know market adoption tends to lag economics. And if I'm an oil company executive, and I'm looking at and saying, well, EVs are certainly growing, but there's still going to be a very small fraction of total automobile sales. Why am I going to shift all my resources and billions of dollars in capital into a technology that yeah, may be cheaper over a course of 25 years, but certainly doesn't present a uh, a large comparable business opportunity today or even in the next decade?
2: Yeah. So, so remember, I mean, Mark Lewis came from Carbon Tracker, which has done all that great work around stranded costs and all that stuff before he joined BNP. And so the argument he's making here is the same that he made there, which is that this is not about market adoption and end sort of numbers of EVs. It's about investment decisions, right? So when you look at the oil and gas sector, of all of their CapEx budgets is going into electricity or sort of new energy type investments today, on average, if you take the top 25 oil companies. Um, Whereas in the auto industry, for instance, a full 70% of their incremental CapEx is now going to EVs, right? The VW has basically just shut down all investment and everything else and is just investing in um, in EVs, right and so and that's because the auto industry recognizes that they can continue to sell their gasoline powered cars based on investments they made five, eight years ago. But making new investments requires a vis- visibility around selling cars that are going to use that new technology for 20 years. And they don't have that visibility. If they put a billion dollars into creating a new car engine, that car engine is not going to amortize itself in terms of the production of new engines. And so they're stopping all new research in those engines. And they're starting and and completing investments in battery packs and all that stuff, because they get the fact that over 20 years, their entire production is going to shift to EVs. And the oil industry just hasn't come to that conclusion yet. And so he's saying the oil industry is being caught flat-footed with their new investment decisions, whereas the auto industry has recognized that they have to pivot.
1: Yeah, so I was looking at all these other um, analysis companies that have looked at what's going to happen with EVs, and an interesting one for folks to look at is the Energy Transition Outlook for of 2018 by DNVGL. And that shows that by 2024, light EVs will reach cost parity with ICE vehicles, that half of all um, light vehicle sales will be EVs by 2033, and then by 2047, you know, all the heavy electric vehicles will start outnumbering ICE vehicles. So it seems like most of these folks, DNVGL, has a pretty um, positive trajectory, but none of them... Um, you know, whether it's IEA or BNEF, any of those show the hockey stick that I actually think we're going to see because so many of these cannot predict consumer behavior and consumer purchasing patterns. I mean, you think about when we went from satellite phones to cell phones and how quickly we transitioned, how quickly we've transitioned with technology. I just I, I don't see these projections um, really taking that tack.
2: The car fleet, you know, turns over every 17 years. And so I do think it'll take 17 years to turn it over. But remember, the car fleet is not tied to vehicle, vehicle miles traveled. And in fact, every major study that's been done around um, households who have two or three cars, when one car comes in that's an EV, that car dominates very quickly in the household. So it doesn't take One half or one third of vehicle miles traveled. In fact, they drive it as their primary car. So it's 60, 70, 75% of vehicle miles traveled. So even if EV penetration is only 20, 30% of the car fleet, it could actually be 50% of vehicle miles traveled. So I think it's important to recognize that. But the other point that Mark is making through investment is he's basically saying that the Green New Deal is cheaper than business as usual. That actually, if all the oil companies decided to take their $100 billion and invested it in this future, instead of trying to look for more oil, that in fact that you would be able to transition to this decarbonized world at one-sixth to one-seventh the cost.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because, um, you know, you could with oil, 36% of crude going to light duty vehicles and about 5% to power generation, there's like 40% on the table that could be really easily replaced by electric vehicles and electrification. But then you look at what Royal Dutch Shell is doing, and they just opened a petrochemical plant in Pennsylvania. So there's the the, all the chemicals and plastics. And that's like a whole different sector that is is still going to be dominated by oil, I think, for a while.
2: But it's not dissimilar to, let's say, the cattle industry, right? You can say that, like, when you take a, you know, cattle, a, a cow, and then you, like, sort of slaughter it, and then you get, like, you know, filet mignon and, and all this other stuff, right? You still have to sell the ground beef, right? Ultimately, gasoline and diesel is the ground beef. It's the stuff that's 97 cents a pound, you know, and and the plastics are the filet mignon. Like, that's where they sell stuff at $300 a barrel equivalent of oil, because they get high margins, but at the end of the day, if we take away the ground beef sales, the, selling the filet doesn't actually make you a profit. And so if you eviscerate 44% of the you know, revenue stream from a refinery, then they're going to have to charge way, way more for the plastics and all the other waxes and paraffins to be able to make money on oil. And that makes it far easier for innovators to replace all of that with non-petroleum solutions. What is the beef tongue? Ooh. <laughs> I definitely think the beef tongue <laughs> is an acquired taste. That's what that is. <laughs>
0: Not for a vegetarian. Right, right. <laughs> what does this report indicate, Jigger? Many years before European utilities started seeing this precipitous decline in revenues and because of the decline in wholesale market prices due to a lot of renewable energy, people were warning about this. And... Uh, they were warning about it hitting U.S. utilities. Um, and of course, low wholesale market prices due to natural gas and renewables here have hit a lot of utilities. And so, you know, we start to see these big banks and financial institutions, the research and analysis teams issue these warnings. And then, you know, some of the more important ones have started to hit the companies that they're tracking. So, if we're now seeing this economic analysis come out, and he's making he's issuing this warning about what could happen to stranded assets, um, that, that there's a cheaper alternative path, is this an indicator of the market changing at any point in the moderately near future? Um,
2: how do you read into it? It's more of a warning, right? Carbon Tracker did this similar thing with utility companies. Um, so in Europe, the utility sector has lost hundreds of billions of dollars, or sorry, euros of of market capitalization, right? And so, so as we talked about before, there will still be pension funds who want allocations to oil. It's just part of what they want to do for their diversity. And so they will continue to invest in these companies. I think what Mark is saying is basically, if these companies continue to invest in something that is basically the worst possible way to invest a dollar, that ultimately they're not making a lot of profits, right? I mean, the data has been very clear that all the unconventional oil, whether it's tar sands or whether it's shale or whether it's deep-sea drilling, at $50 a barrel, none of that stuff makes money or $60 in Mark's analysis. None of it makes money. So the reason the oil companies continue to make money is that they have oil fields that they tapped 20 years ago that are still producing oil at $6, 7 $8 a barrel. And they're basically using that oil to subsidize the rest of their fleet, right? And so at some point investors will recognize that the oil companies are doing what's familiar to them instead of what's actually good for shareholders. And when that occurs, they will lose a tremendous amount of market capitalization. I mean, you saw Exxon has dropped out of the top 10 of the S&P because of some of these issues. And so at some point, you'll find that either the oil companies will say, you know what, we actually want to survive. And that's easier in the state oil companies like Statoil or Equinor now or the Saudi Ramcos of the world. With the publicly traded oil companies, what they're finding is that they are boxed in by their investors. And Mark's just saying, if you don't start investing more intelligently every year, then you're going to dig the hole deeper and deeper for yourself.
1: And is it sort of... um a premonition when you see companies like Danish Oil and Natural Gas (DONG) rebranding as Orsted, Statoil as Equinor, British Gas, Centrica—all these, all of these European uh, fossil fuel entities now trying to transform themselves into clean energy.
2: Yeah, I would say they're different. Centrica is, I think, still mostly a gas utility. But I think when you think about, um, like the you know DONGs of the world and others. These are actually state-owned enterprises. And so ultimately, there are people like Mark who've talked to these state-owned enterprises and said, if you keep going the way you're going to go, you're going to lose all the money, and that money is needed for pensions. And so a lot of these countries are actually willing to abandon oil and gas for these new technologies because it's better for being able to pay pensions, where I think that BP and Exxon and Shell don't care as much about that.
0: Before we move on, a quick word about our sponsor, SunGrow. We are brought to you by SunGrow, and we're very appreciative of their support. With more than 82 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe, SunGrow is now expanding rapidly in the U.S., and it has more than 1.5 gigawatts of projects booked in 2019 alone. One of those projects is a 27-megawatt. Uh, development for the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority, and that project will double the amount of solar power that the Navajo Nation has in Kayenta, and it's actually going to replace a coal plant that's closing later this year. Kayenta, Two will bring critical power to the Navajo Nation, where 15,000 people live without regular access to power. I didn't even realize that. That's pretty incredible. And that excess solar generation from the project will be sold back to the grid to earn money for the Navajo Nation. SunGrow is not just focused on solar either. Its storage inverters are integrated into 200 megawatt hours worth of battery projects across the U.S. So go check out more about what SunGrow is up to at Solar Power International coming up in Salt Lake this September. Go to booth 2211. And uh, if you want to check them out online, they're at sungrowpower.com. In our final episode before the break, we detailed the strange, contradictory ways that Trump is talking about the environment. And we saw this play out in real time inside his administration just this week. On Monday, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt said that the agency had finalized rules that would weaken the Endangered Species Act, opening the door to more fossil fuel extraction and industrial development in sensitive habitats. This comes just two months after a U.N. report showed global extinctions are accelerating faster than at any time in human history. But just a couple of days prior, Bernhardt slowed a major U.S. offshore wind farm in development currently uh, off the coast of Massachusetts, supposedly out of concern for the environment. So how do we square those two things? Uh, Don't try too hard with this administration. (laughs) Uh, And he did it in the most Trumpian way possible by talking to the press In an interview with Bloomberg, he said he's going to extend an environmental review on a group of offshore wind farms planned for the eastern seaboard, including this $2.8 billion 800-megawatt vineyard wind farm that was, until now, moving steadily toward breaking ground. Breaking water? Breaking ground? I don't know. His comments took the industry and policymakers by surprise. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which would be undertaking the review, hadn't even issued an official statement or timeline before Bernhardt made the comments. So they were just like, Reported in the press, and then the industry found out about it, and now they have to go through this review. How big of a problem is this, and what were the motivations, as far as we can tell? Catherine, give us a quick review of Vineyard Wind and how this latest snafu unfolded.
1: Sure. So Vineyard Wind is a 50-50 partnership with Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners and Avan Grid. Lars Peterson is the CEO of Vineyard Wind. I had a chance to speak with him and get some background from him, too. The planned project is 800 megawatts, 84 wind turbines, 14 miles south of Martha's Vineyard um, in... December of 2017, they filed a permit application uh, for doing this project. There was a an article that Department of Interior posted so that said, bidding bonanza, Trump administration smashes record for offshore wind auction with $405 million in winning bids. And they touted, uh, Secretary Zinke at the time touted that Equinor Wind, Mayflower Wind, and Vineyard Wind had all received provisional lease sales. So this this was something that the Trump administration had actually put forward as a very good thing. By um, March of 2018, so last year, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, said they, they expressed an intent to move forward in coordination with other um, federal agencies, so they... They put everything on the permitting dashboard. And the deadline for this permit for the final environmental impact study was going to be July 9th of 2019. Now, you may recall we had a government shutdown last year, so it moved to August 15th, 2019. But what that meant was that the final environmental impact study had to be announced and signed off on by July 10th for them to meet that timeline to really move forward with the project. And the day before that sign-off was due, Secretary Bernhardt, this was not BOEM, this was the secretary, said, we're not going to do this. Instead, what we're going to do is look at the cumulative impact of all of the other potential wind projects in that area, and then make a determination. And that then pushes it an entire another year to complete that analysis. So what that has effectively done has completely stopped this project from moving forward right now on schedule. So it looks like it will be delayed. I know Vineyard Wind is very interested in moving forward. They were the first. This is like the first project. And I will tell you that this team is not of the faint hearted. These are people who've worked for a, over a decade on offshore wind. They are very careful. They understand how to do permitting. They're willing to be the first and take those risks, but um, you know, obviously this came as a huge surprise to them because they thought they had crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's.
0: Well, you certainly have to have thick skin to be doing offshore wind in this country. I mean, you have to be prepared for the worst constantly. But things were looking pretty good up until now. And you did have uh, former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke very supportive of offshore wind. And then David Bernhardt came in from the oil and gas industry, hadn't said much publicly about offshore wind. And then this comes up. What did you make of the way this announcement was made through the press without an official process in place, taking the industry by surprise? Catherine.
1: So I don't know if we can jump to conclusions. I think at this point, we all feel like we can, you know, Bernhardt's under investigation um, by the inspector general for undisclosed lobbying. Uh, You know, there, there are a lot of kind of things going on. At the same time, he was solicitor in the Bush administration. So he's by nature, pretty careful and cautious. So you could say, oh, this is like extreme caution in knowing that there will be lots and lots more wind farms coming online and being developed in that area. Like maybe this is just extreme caution um, and you wouldn't even have to necessarily assign any kind of political you know, means to the what the, this announcement was. Um, but it is very surprising and really disappointing, especially given that Vineyard Wind had gotten so much support from all different sectors. So they worked with marine ecologists. They worked with the fishing industry. They worked with community partners to put $15 million back in to low-income communities. They worked even with the offshore energy industry. So the the energy industry, oil and gas, too, was all supportive of this because they see this as just benefiting everybody to be able to have more leases for energy. So... There had been such wide-ranging support that that's why I think it came as such a surprise. There are also, remember, the supply chains for all this manufacturing aren't limited to Massachusetts. The manufacturing is in Louisiana. I mean, this is a $3 billion project that has... Um, and that's a billion with a B, that has, you know, this amazing supply chain with tons of economic benefit. This is really an economic development project that is, you know, going to boost the waterfronts and, you know, has so much support. In some ways, that's why it just came as a complete surprise.
0: Yeah, shout out to uh, Carl Eric Stromsa, the new managing editor somewhat new managing editor at Green Tech Media who wrote a really good story about uh, what this does to the logistics of the project, not just the, the politics at play, but if the project is delayed, what it does uh, if the if the vineyard wind can't take the tax credit, and then what that does to logistics, which are very tenuous. Jigger, can you unpack some of those? So what happens financially and logistically if this project is delayed in a substantial way?
2: The interesting thing about offshore wind is that and wind in general, is that everything has gotten so large, right? That the logistics are actually the most important thing of any wind project, right? And getting things to the location isn't something that you can just use traditional rail or traditional highways or other things, that you actually have to figure out exactly how you're going to transport things to the project. And then more importantly, because of that, you actually have to manufacture things close to, uh, close to, you know, where you're actually installing it. In this case, Louisiana, I think is, was chosen because of its, you know, port infrastructure and the ability to transport things to Massachusetts. And so it's, it's really, you know, fascinating how all this stuff comes together in vineyards case. One of the big challenges is that they actually, you know, want to, um, Get grandfathered in with the investment tax credit, and you know the cliff that's coming with the um, the PTC and the ITC fight is one that you know really affects their economics, and so they're trying to meet the construction start, but they actually have to be able to complete construction in a certain time period, and so they're really this is a really risky deal right now, and I think that Massachusetts and its ability to be flexible with vineyards is going to be critical in getting this done.
0: And probably other states as well that may be influenced by this, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, this environmental review of all the projects that are planned for the the Northeast and along the East Coast, uh, they, this this could modify their plans, it, depending on how long this environmental review goes.
1: Yeah, South Carolina, too. Next year, on New York and South Carolina are going to have auctions.
0: That's right. And I think at this point, no one has the answer to that. There are very few details about what this review will look like and what the timeline will be, which is what is angering so many people. Um, But I I think a lot of folks are hoping that they push it forward um, in a reasonable way. And people within the administration see the economic opportunity and see that there are a lot of important logistics involved that create
2: jobs here locally. I have to say, though, that... One of the things that I, you know, learned from you know Russell Gold's book Superpower was that it's just shocking to me how much animosity there is within largely conservative voices for wind power. Um, whether it's the president or Lamar Alexander at the time for that book, or whether it's the Manhattan Institute and Robert Bryce and all those folks, you know, there's there's a special hatred in their heart for wind energy and that they don't have for solar. And it's one of the weirdest things I've ever experienced. But you know, I just don't, I don't understand it. But I don't think it's easily overcomable just by saying there's economic development here.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting, because it's not universal. So there are, there's tons of Republican support for these projects. I mean, of course, Senator Grassley from Iowa has been the you know the king of all wind, but there's also you know Senators Murkowski and Collins have been supportive of this offshore The Washington times uh ran an op ed with a really good op ed very much supporting offshore wind and saying that that the Trump administration should embrace this that you know one point four billion dollars in ratepayer savings uh you know is, stands to to come from these projects. So there have been, um, it's not a universal view from conservatives. There are certain voices that are anti-wind, but not all of them.
0: That's absolutely true, Catherine. I do want to talk about one thing that we've discussed numerous times since the Trump administration took over, and that is their influence on the energy transition. We had this debate after Trump was elected about whether or not he could stall progress. And Although they've rolled back a lot of environmental regulations, the clean energy transition continues, right? But this is a thing that the Trump administration can do to completely halt momentum on a really important industry. And I I say that knowing that we don't fully have the context for this decision, but the cynic in me believes that there's certainly some politics at play here. Um, But no one has reported uh, that Why exactly this decision was made. But I think that we can we can certainly read into it with an, an informed understanding of what this administration is all about. And and that leads me to believe that, like, of course, this administration has a really important influence and it can just with the snap of its fingers really dismantle. Or derail really important projects in this country that could be the foundation of an entire industry that could take years to redevelop if we don't get it right.
1: Well, and it's a self-inflicted wound. So these are things that are really would should be very easy to sign off on and take credit for. Um, And this is all in the in the spirit of deregulation and speeding up permitting processes. This should fit really well into that. Um, and it seems like for economic development, that would be really helpful. And what will end up happening is that the industry and the financial folks will go to where there is certainty in the market. And that's, that's where they're going to, they will follow the money. Um, and so hopefully this will continue forward and we will get an offshore wind industry that's really strong, um, and hopefully they'll they'll get this permit through and get it done maybe on a more delayed timeline, but that we will have an offshore wind industry, um, but we certainly can't get financial certainty unless we know that there is also policy certainty.
0: Okay, well, let's move on to our third topic. You know, I didn't get to read as much as I would have liked over my paternity leave, but I did read some, and one article really caught my eye. It was an opinion piece in the New York Times from... A guy named Christopher Caldwell, who is a conservative thinker and author, I think he's a senior editor at the Weekly Standard, and he wrote about Greta Thunberg. Thunberg, as many of our listeners know, is a 16-year-old Swedish climate activist who has inspired a, a mass global climate walkout among young students. She's challenged top political and business leaders, to their faces at major summits and in parliament. And she's built a really strong social media following. She's also picked up criticism from conservatives in the UK and now in the US who are using newspaper columns to smear her as she travels around the world talking about climate change. One British magazine said of this when she visited recently, Quote, this poor young woman increasingly looks and sounds like a cult member, the monotone voice, the look of apocalyptic dread in her eyes. Yo, guys, she had I mean, she has Asperger's. Um, this this is the kind of stuff that people are writing. It's just truly disgusting and heart wrenching. Um, the New York Times piece did not fall to such gross depths, uh, but it did call Thunberg's approach. You know, student strikes calls for fast action beyond what policymakers are doing. He called it anti-democratic. And, and the piece was widely derided on climate Twitter, both for, you know, the argument itself and for targeting Thunberg. So I'm just curious about your reactions to this piece. Uh, and, and because Greta Thunberg is coming over to the U.S. right now, I thought it was a good chance to talk about what she is up to and why people are
2: responding. So so Jigger, over to you first. What was your reaction to this piece? So, I mean, I, f- I was... Very disheartened by the piece. I, you know, the fact the New York Times even published it was just outrageous. I, you know, I think that um, for a 16 year old girl to be accused of basically destroying democratic institutions, I mean, basically what the opinion writer basically said was that if uh, all of her activism really led to action at the scale that she Wants it to to happen in it would require basically you know authoritarian tendencies and while that argument might be true I don't know um, it's not something you can put on her feet right the fact of the matter is activists do this all the time and that is exactly why they're so heralded um, is that they're able to get people to move when they're not able to move I mean remember today in her her home country. You know, air airline traffic is down because, you know, there's just so much, you know, shaming of flying, right? I mean, to the point where the airlines are not doing that well, SAS and others. And so she's had huge impacts. And I think that the destruction of democracy is on the feet of the our democratic elected leaders, not on the feet of activists. I'm just thankful that she's there. Catherine, what about you?
1: Yeah. I mean, activism I agree. Activism is the foundation of democracy. I mean, you think OPEC is democratic. Um, You know, there have been a few select people that have been basically running the energy markets around the world. And she's saying, all right, guys, we got to do something different. The article just, of course, made me practically lose my mind, because the way he talked was so patronizing and said she'd been radicalizing, that she'd used crude language, uh, which is just false, that because she's only 16, she can't be robustly criticized. And yes, that was exactly what he was doing. He said that, you know, this all requires demonizing. Well, let's just go back and look at the boat that she is sailing over to the UN conference on. The slogan is United Behind the Science. That is not a slogan of revolution. That is a slogan of, guys, we got to follow the facts. Let's do what we need to do to protect our planet. I think it's amazing what she's done. I'm so grateful for people like her for getting other young people involved and really getting the attention of governments all over the world.
0: So what do you all think about what she's actually been doing? You know, the, the, the student walkouts, um, speeches at important conferences where she just basically points her finger and says like you're you're responsible for this do something and she does it in a very articulate uh very articulate way what do you make of what she's actually doing
2: effective i love it look i think that we are staring the collapse of all of our institutions in the face and everyone basically looks at it and says Oh I remember better times. Maybe better times are coming again. Maybe there'll just be a technological fix that we can all just deploy like the Green Revolution and, and everyone, everything gonna be fine. And that's not where we are. I mean, when you just think about the sheer amount of ice melt in Greenland right now or just you know, glaciers just you know breaking off and melting that are the size of Florida, I mean, we are in treacherous, treacherous, waters today and and I just think that the sort of um the lack of real sort of energy around solving this problem from elected leaders is you know is is just appalling right I mean not just this administration in the US but the previous administration and you know and administrations around the world it's it's it it it, it is something to be called out and frankly if you know you're 16 years old and You have your entire life ahead of you and and all of it is going to be riddled with, you know, sort of disaster after disaster. Um, I mean, I'd be pissed, too. Catherine, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I totally I absolutely agree. I mean, you see what um, young people have been able to do to move the bar on gun control and other issues. And I think we have to have young people involved. I mean, they are the future. And um, I think her tactics are are really great, and I think it's inspiring. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping con- she continues long after we're gone.
0: So let's close it out there and share our free electrons. Catherine, we'll go to you first. What's yours this week?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a good opinion piece from the New York Times <laughs> that I'm going to tout um, by Carl Safina, who's a professor at Stony Brook University, and he runs a center as an author of many books, including something coming up called Becoming Wild. And what he did was a pretty good... Um, analysis. And then he, of course, he put in some opinion about what the Trump administration is doing on the Endangered Species Act. Um, The Endangered Species Act was signed into law by Nixon in 1973. It has been incredibly successful. It has significantly improved you know 80% of marine mammals and 75% of sea turtles those populations incredible improvements condors bald eagles so bald eagles i see them up here in the Adirondacks now and we can see them in Arlington right outside of DC so um the endangered species act has really been a model for other countries it has been so successful and the trump administration is looking to gut it through regulation and or reduced regulation so they're diminishing critical habitat protection they're impeding the listing process for these um, um, for these animals, and um, and they're also ignoring any climate change impact on declining habitat. So declining habitat is key to losing species, and they're going to just ignore a lot of the science around that too. So it is, it's really bad. I hope that um, we'll be able to push back on that, but I very much fear, I mean, this is a law that's been in place and been very successful, but an administration can completely turn it around just through uh, reduced regulation.
2: Jigger, what is your free electron this week? So, you know, I was reading um, some interesting articles about Paul Singer. He runs Elliott Management. And, you know, he's basically been a part of uh, sinking David Crane at NRG and, you know, selling off all the renewables. And he just, he basically just um, is a big sort of fossil fuel promoter. And it looks like he is in the poll position to take over control of PG&E um, coming out of the bankruptcy. So he's, you know, collected a lot of the debt and he's working pretty hard to work with the governor. Um, he's making a huge uh, media play this week in California to support his position. Um, you know, the, the utility looks like it wants to get out of restructuring by September and then get fully out of the bankruptcy process by May of next year. And it would be a a shame to see Elliott management um, take such a huge role here, uh, given his anti-renewable energy stance. But um, um, it looks like he's in bed with uh, the governor and he's in the poll position right now.
0: Well, I'm trying to hold things together over here. Uh, Early fatherhood has been nothing but fantastic, but I am stressed about the environmental impact of having a baby and you know, I've done my best to limit the amount of stuff that we buy for the baby and just kind of get it as we need it. We've got mostly used stuff for the for the the big items. Um we actually went through this whole deliberation between cloth diapers and disposable diapers and Boston incinerates it's trash and we looked at the water consumption of um of reusable diapers and the calculation came down you know they were basically even so we decided to go with disposable diapers I'm sure there are some listeners out there who are scoffing at that who are environmentally minded but anyway I'm just thinking through all the ways that I can be a good environmental steward while being a new parent and I'm curious if either of you have used any hacks or principles in your parenting that you want to share
1: I'm happy to jump in since I have the most kids of the bunch. I have four. My oldest is going to be 30 this next year. She's 29 now, and my youngest is going to be 16. So it's been a little while. And I also, you know, I did the cloth diaper for the first kid, and I thought my house was never going to get the smell of baby urine out of it, ever. It's just (laughs) disgusting. And, you know, we just took a decision like life is going to be fine if we use paper or diapers. Honestly, I I love that you, you know, that you use hand-me-downs. I mean, we obviously with four kids, there was was a lot of hand-me-down going on. Um, But also like the most important thing is get your kid out in nature, get them interested in nature and animals, read them books, sing to them. I mean, those to me are the things that make them become People that care about other people that are connected to their environment, and that may be even more important than what kind of diapers you use
0: great answer what about you
2: jigger yeah unfortunately i 'm not as original here I think it 's the same <laughs> i We looked at cloth diapers for a hot minute and then realized that it was a hot mess, and so we we went uh, to disposable i think um, um I totally agree with you. The one thing that I find fascinating and it looks sounds like we have unanimity here, but like. Is that we just don't buy Dylan very much stuff. I, I don't, I honestly like, you know, he loves going to other people's houses because they have so much stuff. Um, <laughs> like, we don't have a lot of stuff for him. And the stuff that we do get is mostly used. And, you know, like we like, you know, could go to the garage sales and do a lot of that stuff. And I just think it's really important for him to recognize that things can be reused. Um, we go to the library a lot and, you know, like, you know, play. Uh, um you know sort of the puzzles and that kind of stuff there so i i i just think that, that that's the big thing for me like the thing that i just wish the most for him is not to get caught up into the consumerism yeah. trap that you know we've done here
0: yeah for sure i have a friend who has a rule at a certain level of toys he said um well you can if you want a new toy you can choose which one to donate and so they cycle through things if they get a new or used toy they find a way to donate it and then he's teaching his child that um, you know you can donate things to other people so that they can use it and you don't just have to get more and more and more stuff so I do think all those little little rules are helpful and uh, they have a long term impact on the way people think about this stuff well, that's going to do it for us. Good to be back. Great to hear both of you. Thanks, Catherine, for joining us from the Adirondacks. Uh, you're off next week, right? No, Jigger's off next yeah. week. I can't. I'm on next week.
1: I'll still be in the Adirondacks. Still here.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, we appreciate the time you're taking on the vacation to chat with us, Jigger. Enjoy Iceland. It's such a great country. You're going to love it. Have you been there before? I
2: haven't, but I am looking forward to it. Yeah,
0: it's it's uh, it's fantastic and please go swim in the effluent from a geothermal <laughs> power plant. It's like no other it's no, like other, no other effluent that you've ever <laughs> swam in. <laughs> And for all of you, I noticed a bunch of new uh, ratings and reviews on the podcast, even when we were gone. And you're just writing such amazing reviews. And it's clear that the podcast is helpful to you when you're learning about this industry uh, or growing your business or whatever it is. And we are so appreciative that this is valuable to you and that you're sticking with us every week. So thank you. And if you haven't given us a rating and review, it does help other people. Um, find this show. So please uh, go ahead and do that. And you can find us on social media. All three of us are there on Twitter and the energy gang is there as well. We post periodic updates about what we're covering each week. Thanks a lot, everybody. I'm Stephen Lacey with my co host Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. We are the energy gang. We'll catch you next week.